Hallelujah. Well, as we said, we're going to continue on in the Gospel of John. We are on chapter 12, verses 1 through 19 today. We are getting there. I think it's been, what, three or four months, and uh, we still have about that much left to go. We're going to get through it. Praise God. Hallelujah. You know, I, I love uh, going verse by verse like this because you don't get to skip stuff. You got to deal with it all. And uh, I'm glad we have the opportunity to do that. And uh, um, But today, we're coming up to a part in Jesus' life where his public ministry is, is starting to come to an end. Now, last week, you remember that he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. A bunch of people were, were getting excited and starting to believe in Jesus again. And, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, they've just about had enough. And now it's official. They're all plotting to kill Jesus. And as a result, Jesus kind of had to, to back away a little bit. And, and it says that uh, he was no longer able to walk openly among the Jews because if he did, then they would try to seize him and kill him. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought that was God's plan all along. It is, but there's a specific timing that God wanted to happen. It couldn't just happen whenever. God had a plan. And until the events we read about today, he's actually holed up in a, in a little city called uh, Ephraim, which is near the wilderness. And, and he actually remained there with his disciples, sheltered from the Jews, hidden away from the Jews, until what we see today as he head back, heads back into Bethany. And in chapter 12, we're going to study three pretty significant events in Jesus' ministry. The first two we're going to review today. One, it's Mary's anointing of Jesus, which was preparing him for his death and burial. Two, we're going to see his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then three, which we'll review next week, Jesus is going to declare clearly that the Son of Man must be lifted up. He declares his upcoming death. To all his disciples. At this point in Jesus' ministry, God's timing for his ultimate purpose is at hand. And we're going to see that start to play out. In chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at him, with him at the table. So like I said, once again, it says that the time for Jesus to begin walking among the Jews has, has once again come. And he could no longer remain hidden away. He couldn't remain in Ephraim anymore because his mission was about to get started. The, the final purpose for Jesus, which as we all know, if you know the rest of the story, close your ears if you don't, but uh, Jesus is going to give his life for us. And it was always God's plan and purpose for Jesus to do this. And for, for any of you thinking that, that somehow this is something cruel that God did, one, Jesus did this willingly. And two, Jesus was one with God. The, 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 the scripture says there's three persons, one God. They are, they are eternally the same. One God. So this, this wasn't like um, uh, me taking my son and tying him up against his will, but this was God stepping off the throne to walk as a man with us who willingly gave his life for us because he loved you that much. Amen? So it's now six days before Passover. The Passover where Jesus would ultimately be crucified on. It's coming soon. And Jesus makes his way back to Bethany. To visit his friends before he'd ultimately make his way back to Jerusalem. 
And this is interesting because, like I said, the, the Jewish authorities are after him. And, and I don't know, if it were me, and I knew people were trying to kill me, maybe going out in public and having a big dinner is not the right, the right uh, solution, the right idea. But, but Jesus loves his friends, and he's going to go spend one more dinner with his friends here in Bethany, with, with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and we're going to see Simon the leper here as well. And, and uh, the reality is, is it's been a few weeks since Jesus has, has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the interesting thing about this is this, this account is given in, in two more of the Gospels. You find this account in Matthew and also in Mark. And we actually get a little bit more details, and we'll see that as we go through the story today. I'll bring up some of the extra details we get from the other accounts. But uh, from those other accounts, we, we learn a little bit more. One, we find out that this is the, the house of Simon the leper who must have also been a good friend of Jesus if Jesus is there to visit him and have dinner with him. Really, a week before, he knows he's going to give his life. <laughs> Maybe this Simon the leper was one of the lepers that Jesus healed. Actually, more than likely, it was one that Jesus healed because um, if you guys don't know this, everybody hanging out of this house is Jewish, and you can't hang out with lepers if you're Jewish because you could become ceremonially unclean. You know, that was a big deal. So the reality is, is this guy is probably clean, but that name stuck with him. How would you like to have probably one of the worst moments of your life be stuck with you as you're described to everybody? I guess the name just kind of stuck. We also see that Martha served there, which, which is probably an indication that Martha was, was really good friends with Simon the leper as well. Typically, you wouldn't just show up to someone's house and start serving there unless you were close with them. So these are all friends coming together, men and women who love Jesus, and they're getting ready to have a dinner in honor of Jesus. Matter of fact, when we read a little bit later, this thing is referred to as a feast. So this isn't some little quiet gathering, but there's going to be a lot of people there, and they are honoring Jesus. And during this dinner, in verse 3, we see that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now, this ointment was actually a fragrant oil made from the roots and stems of an herb in the mountains of northern India called nard. It was stupid expensive. <laughs> Matter of fact, as I was reading and studying about this stuff, they actually used nard as an investment, of, of, uh, as a store of value, much the way that we use gold today. People will buy gold as an investment. They would actually buy nard as an investment. The other two accounts say that it was stored in an alabaster flask. Have you guys ever seen alabaster before? It's pretty cool. It kind of looks like marble. It's a really light color. It's translucent. And it was, it's kind of a really soft uh, 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 mineral so they would often take it and they would carve stuff out of it. They would carve the alabaster bo uh, boxes or flasks that this was often stored in. Now, not only is the ointment stupid expensive, but so are these alabaster containers. So what we have is this extremely valuable substance that she's going to pour out onto Jesus. From the other accounts, we can see that she actually broke the flask and then anointed his head. 
If you're wondering how this works, think of it as a, as, a, as a bottle with a long neck. And they would break the neck off to open it to be able to pour out the ointment that was inside of it. And then the other, the other accounts say that not only did she anoint his head, but she anointed his feet as well. And then she also broke away from Jewish tradition because then it says she wiped his feet with her hair. If you don't know anything about the culture back then, women didn't let their hair down in front of men unless it was family. This would have been extremely out of what was considered the social norm back then for her to let down her hair in front of Jesus, in front of the other men that were there. But she wasn't concerned about social decorum. She was concerned about honoring Jesus. This was an incredible act of love on her part. I don't know how rich that she was. There's no real indication that she was just rolling in it. So this is probably years and years of savings that she has in this, this alabaster flask of oil that she breaks and pours out at the feet of Jesus. I want you to understand this isn't an insignificant gift. This cost her dearly to honor Jesus with this. And then John says, the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. This is one of those things, and there's a few of them in the Gospel of John, that just really shows that this, this account is an eyewitness account. You're probably not, if you're recording the life that you've heard second, third hand, something like that, these aren't the kind of details that you're going to reveal. But John was there. John was one of the disciples. He's there with Jesus. When we talked in the beginning of this, we said, you know, there's actually some argument as to who wrote the Gospel of John. But this is one of the evidence that points to the reality that it was actually John that wrote it because this is a personal detail, a personal account of one who was actually in the room describing the smell of the perfume surrounding this house. Now as an aside, I've already told you about two other accounts of this in Matthew and Mark, but how many know there's also another similar account in the book of Luke of a woman breaking an alabaster flask? of ointment and, and anointing Jesus with it. Now, if you have studied this at all, you might go, well, there's some things that seem different. And also, in Luke, this event is described as happening way earlier in Jesus' ministry, whereas this is, is described as happening right before Jesus goes to the cross, a week before. And the reality is, is that these actually aren't the same event. What happens in Luke is, is a completely separate event, and I've, I've seen some studying on it and, and, and watched some stuff on it, and more than likely the event that happened in Luke, which was um, much earlier than this, was probably known about by the other ones, and she may have just been acting in the same manner, or this may have just been a common way of honoring somebody. But the, the one that's recorded in Luke, like I said, happened much earlier in Jesus' ministry. And the woman described in the one that happened in Luke is um, she's described as, as, as a woman in the city that is a sinner. Whereas the one that's described here is of Mary, who is not described as a sinner, but described as one who loves Jesus and who is devoted to him. 
In addition, the event that happens here is in the house of Simon the leper. But the one that happens in Luke is in the house of Simon the Pharisee. But you're going to go, Wayne, Pastor Wayne, those are the same name. Are you sure they're not the same person? Well, let me ask you this. How many Johns do you know? How many Steves do you know? I think we got three in the building right now. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that Simon was the most common name that was given to, to, to men in this time. These are two different people. So the reason I bring this up is you're like, why is, why is he preaching so long on this? Why is it so important? Well, this is one of the things that people will try to use in the Bible that says, you know what? There's so many contradictions. Look at this story here. One says it happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. The other says it happened in the end. One says it happened at Simon the leper's house. One says it happened at Simon uh, the Pharisee's house. One says it was, it was you know, with Mary, this devout woman who loves Jesus. The other one says it with this, this, this woman, just some random woman in the city that's a sinner. So it's a contradiction or it could just be two different stories which is the most likely <laughs> explanation so that's why i wanted to share that with you there but let's keep going on in the gospel of john in verse four through six it says but judas iscariot one of the disciples who was about to betray him said why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor and he said this isn't this he said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The other accounts that describe this event say the disciples, or there were some who became indignant. Now one, I think that shows us that Judas is probably not the only one that was getting a little bit offended that all of this, this was being poured out at Jesus' feet. But John makes it clear who was the most upset. John makes it clear who's the one that verbalized his offense. Getting super upset about Mary breaking this flask of extremely expensive oil and, and anointing Jesus with it. And he begins to complain that, you know what, this anointment, or the anointment, see? <laughs> I'm not really making up a word, I'm just using the wrong one. This ointment... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so expensive. And he says, you know what? You could have sold it for 300 denarii. And 300 denarii is like a year's worth of wages. I mean, like I said, this isn't an inexpensive bottle of perfume, a bottle of oil. And he says, you know what? We could have sold that and given it to the poor. But the thing is, is that Judas wasn't really interested in the poor. He was interested in himself. Turns out he was a thief, and he would regularly steal from the money bags. He would regularly steal from the money that was set aside to take care of Jesus and the disciples to make sure that they had what they needed. And I wonder, if this was something that they all knew about, did Jesus know about it, did the other disciples know about it, or is this just something they figured out afterwards, right? Because this is written sometime after the events. But it turns out that Judas had control of the money bags, which made it really easy for him to pocket a little bit, a little bit for you, a little bit for me. And I don't want to overread into this passage, but as I'm reading this, it crossed my mind that we have two very different mindsets with how we should handle money, how we should handle valuables when it comes to Jesus. On one hand, we have somebody that has something that's incredibly expensive. 
and she just gives it up freely to honor Jesus. And on the other hand, we have somebody who's concerned that this sacrifice is a waste and it could have been used for something else. Another who wanted to keep it. And in so, instead of it being at the foot of Jesus, he wanted it in his pockets. He wanted to steal it. And the truth is, in his case, the theft would have kind of been twofold, right? One, he would have stole the opportunity from this lady honoring Jesus with something that was extremely valuable. It was a great sacrifice to her. But then he would also literally stole the money <laughs> that, was, that would have been made if they would have sold it. Jesus wouldn't have received this worship and then Judas would have pilfered it from him anyway. Two very different mindsets. And one of the things you'll see that we always talk about, Pastor Joseph and myself, when we're getting ready to receive the offering is this idea that when we give, we're not doing it out of a sense of obligation. We're not doing it out of a sense of duty. It's not something that we have to do because we're Christians. We do it because He gave everything for us. It is at, it's a response of worship to the one who gave everything, even His own life. That's why I always tell you, if you're giving because you feel like you have to, put it back in your pocket. You're missing the point. The idea is that we're worshiping the one that gave everything to us. It's a natural response. If somebody gives you everything, the natural response is to want to give in return. You see this in your own life. I mean, how many times have you bought somebody a cup of coffee and they go out of their way to try to get you the next time? They want to return that gift. So when we give, we do it in an attitude of worship, just like her. She's not concerned about the gift. She's concerned about honoring Jesus. But then we have Judas who's more concerned about keeping the stuff. He's interested in the value of the stuff. And there are so many Christians today who have this same mindset. They would rather keep the stuff instead of honor the one that gave it all to them anyway. Amen? So Jesus responds in verse 7. And eight, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's interesting because normally an anointing like this would be the announcement of a, of a or mark a festive occasion. But in this case, the anointing was actually to prepare Jesus for his death and, and burial. And Mary had sat at the feet of Jesus many times. She had heard him speak. She had heard him preach. She had probably picked up on the idea that time was running out. Very soon, he would be giving his life, and she knew what was coming. And Jesus understood the significance as well. And while Judah claimed this was a waste, in the other accounts, it doesn't say it here, but in the other accounts, Jesus says this is actually beautiful what she's doing her honoring him her preparing him for his burial this was beautiful and then he goes listen the poor you always are going to have but you will not always have me for her to go through this specific act this was the last chance that she would have to do so they would always be able to give to the poor. They would always be able to, to help support them, but they were running out of time for being with Jesus to do these kinds of things. And Mary understood how important and special Jesus was. So what she was doing 
was just like they would do in burial, preparing the body with spices and oil. She was actually doing that very thing for him in preparation. And you would think that Judas would learn something from this situation, this event, about the value of money and how important it was. But instead, we find that he's soon going to betray Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Today during the Super Bowl, there's going to be 90 seconds of ads purchased by a company called Haven. It's part of a campaign called He Gets Us. And this, this group, this Haven group, has got a lot of anonymous backers. Some say that, like, for instance, the owner of, of Hobby Lobby is included in this. And a bunch of anonymous Christian backers are supporting this, this organization, Haven. And they're going to, they've bought 90 seconds of ads during the Super Bowl today. And if you go to their website, this is what this says. It says, He Gets Us is a movement to reintroduce people to the Jesus of the Bible and His confounding love and forgiveness. And they're spending, to put the ads in today, $20 million to run these ads. And if you've kept an eye on the news coming up to this, you might have seen articles where we have all these people that are, that are complaining. Couldn't this money, I mean, this is some of the actual quotes, couldn't this money be better spent feeding and housing the poor? Now, I don't know all the details of this organization. I, I didn't look too much into it. But I do know that they're going to put the message of Jesus, and I hope they put the full gospel message of Jesus in front of millions of people today. And it's true. The money could be used on other things. But this is the way these people are going to be honoring God showing their love for him is to spend this money to get his message, to get Jesus in front of as many people as they can. And if this is what they want to do with their money to honor God, who are we to say otherwise? And if even one person, what if only one person is led to give their life to the Lord as a result of this? I don't know about you, but I think that would be worth it. And I'm so excited that so many people are going to have Jesus presented to them today. Lord knows they show us all other kinds of crazy stuff during the halftime show. Maybe this time some people will get something good. Amen? Seems like, as I've always said, technology changes, but people don't. And as we continue on in the story in verse 9 through 11, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plan to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the cat's out of the bag now, right? He was hiding out in Ephraim. Nobody knew where he was, but now he's out in public again. They're starting to learn where he's at. So Jews from the region, probably a lot of them making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. They're making their pilgrimage. And uh, they've heard about Jesus. They're from the area in Galilee. They know, uh, Galilee. they know about him. They've heard about his miracles. Or they've seen them themselves. And they hear that Jesus is back in Bethany. And he's also there with that guy that came back from the dead. So now they're all mobbing over to Bethany to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. 
You see, people saw what Jesus did with Lazarus is proof that Jesus was who he said he was. It was proof that he was the Messiah. It was proof that God was with him. Because not just anybody can raise somebody from the dead, amen? So many more were beginning to believe in him. And as they heard the story about Lazarus rising from the dead, as they heard the story about Jesus, and they're all beginning to believe, they're hearing the miracles, and they want to see him. So then <laughs> the chief priests, they decide that they want to put Lazarus to death as well. Because heaven forbid, he have make somebody believe in Jesus. Can you imagine having such an incredible miracle happen in your life? You were dead, now you're alive. And the response of all the people who should be celebrating, who should be rejoicing, people that you should be able to trust, their response is, we want to kill you? Can you imagine that? And how did they justify this? You know, even though they were wrong, at least in their own minds, they had justified killing Jesus, right? They thought he was being heretical. They thought he was blaspheming. So in their own minds, they had justified killing Jesus, even though they were dead wrong in what they were thinking. At least they had justified it. But what was their justification for killing Lazarus? He had done nothing wrong. He had only had a miracle happen to him. But the thing is, is their concern with Lazarus was not about what he had done, but about the threat that he posed to them. Because the more people that believed in Jesus meant the, the, the more likely that their power was going to be threatened. Their positions were going to be threatened. So Lazarus being alive and leading people and pointing people towards Jesus was enough for them to want to kill him. In many ways, receiving a miracle from Jesus was tough. I mean, think about the people that had miracles happen to them. You're like, man, I want to see those miracles. I wish these things would happen to me. That's incredible. I mean, someone rose from the dead. They had their sight come back. I mean, think about the guy who had his sight returned. What happened to him? He could see. That's a miracle. That's amazing. Then they kicked him out of the synagogue. They completely ostracized him from his family, from his, from his religion. He was just kicked out of everything. All because Jesus had healed him. Lazarus, he was dead. He comes back to life. This is an amazing miracle. And now all the religious leaders want to kill him. It was tough having Jesus get to a miracle on you. And you know what? The truth is today, following Jesus will cost you as well. As I've always said, one of the, the, the worst things that we can do is tell people, if you become a Christian, everything's going to be perfect. Your life's just going to be amazing. Everything's going to be all right. Just lollipops and gumdrops from here on out. But the reality is, is that that's not the way it's going to go. Now, it's true. There are some things that you might not have to deal with anymore because you're a Christian. But there are going to be so many things you're going to deal with just because you're a Christian. Matter of fact, in the way that society is changing right now, the way that the, the idea of what's socially acceptable and what's socially not acceptable, Christianity and what we believe is becoming more and more socially unacceptable. To become a Christian right now is going to cost you, especially in the years to come. Right now, it's just a bunch of angry people and cancellations. But who knows what it'll be in the next few years. Jesus says, if they hate me, they'll hate you. That's just the reality. But I want you to know that it is worth it. Amen.
then in verse 12 on through 13 it says the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out hosanna Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We're getting ready to look into Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. See, Joseph, now you got me making up all kinds of words. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, the interesting thing about the Gospels is we get little glimpses and insights and a little more detail from each one of them. If you read the other three Gospels and you read about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you would almost get this picture in your head that all these people that are there to receive him and worship him and, and put out the palm branches and say, blessed is the King of Israel, come, you know, you would almost get the impression it's spontaneous. But we get more, more information from John. This actually wasn't spontaneous. These were all the people who had seen Lazarus or heard about Lazarus. These are all the people that were, that were gathering in Bethany to see Jesus. And now they heard that he's heading to Jerusalem, so they're making their way as well. So not only that, they're going to intermingle with all the other pilgrims that are making their way to Jerusalem, and they're spreading the word. They're telling them about Jesus and how he raised them from the dead, and he's the Messiah, and he's coming to save them. And, and right now he is going to Jerusalem. He's our king, and they begin to worship him. And then we have... It's, it's funny because we have all this extra backstory of what happens, but then actually John's description of the entry is, is the shortest of all the Gospels. <laughs> John's primary concern seems to be with linking what happens when Jesus makes his way back into Jerusalem with all the Old Testament prophecies that he's fulfilling. So this big group of Jews who had been with him in Bethany, they're heading there, they're telling everybody else. Jesus is showing up, probably he's mobbing with a big old crowd as well. They're all coming with him. He's coming in. They're all shouting. They're worshiping him. They're crying out, Hosanna. Bless us, he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And they were excited because they thought their Messiah had come. They thought that this guy is here. He's going to free us from Roman oppression. Look, he's marching on Jerusalem right now. He's going to take it back. And they were, they were amazed. They were excited. The waving of the palm branches, this is a sign of honor. Obviously, so is yelling that he's the king of Israel. You know, the they, problem is, is they had the wrong Messiah. They thought the Messiah that they had in their head was this, this amazing general who was going to come in and, and topple over the Roman government and, and, and set the Jew, Jewish people free. They thought that this was, this, this was what Jesus was going to do, but they had the wrong Messiah. Little did they know that Jesus, who was their Messiah, wasn't coming in to free them from Roman oppression, but he would be freeing them from something much greater, which was the power of sin. Unfortunately, because of their misunderstanding of who the Messiah was and what he would do, just in a few days they're going to begin rejecting him. In verse 14 it says, And Jesus found a young, don young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The reality is, is their king had come. 
just not the king that they had expected. Now, when a king arrives, you would expect things to look a little bit different. When I was in the army, whenever we had one of the big generals visiting a base, and you can see this now, like if you've ever been on a military base and all of a sudden all the, all the, street, uh, the, the street lines get repainted perfectly white and they repaint all the lines and they clean up all, the, all the, the grass and the trees and they fix anything that's broken, that usually means somebody important is coming into town who is going to be arriving to much fanfare. And you would expect that, that uh, in this case, a king would be coming in, he's going to show up. On a, on a big, beautiful stallion, maybe being pulled in chariots. But now Jesus shows up on a donkey's colt. But he came just as he was prophesied to do in Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They expected a warring general. But Jesus shows up humbly on the back of a donkey because riding in on a donkey was actually a sign of peace. And he carried no crown. He carried no weapons. And this was all lost on the crowd. They still expected that powerful warring general who was going to set them free from warring, from Roman oppression. Then in verse 16 it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and it had been done to him. Even the disciples didn't pick up on what was happening. They were close to Jesus. They were actually participating in these events actually happening, right? They went and got the donkey for him. They were all part of it, but they still didn't see the significance, at least not until after Jesus had been glorified. It's one of the things that I've always wondered is, there's still a lot of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, particularly as we are, are moving ever closer to the end of times. And I don't know when that's going to happen, whether it's going to happen tomorrow or another two or four or 10,000 years. Who knows? But there are certain prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled. And I've always wondered, like, if you're on the other end, if you oppose this, wouldn't you do everything in your power not to fulfill these prophecies? Like, wouldn't you do like, like I'm going to know what they are. I'm going to make sure we're not doing them. But the reality is, is that I don't even think they'll, they'll know that they're doing them. I mean, these folks here, they're, they're participating in, in prophecy being fulfilled in that very moment. They don't even notice. Even the disciples who, who should have had some idea, they don't even notice. And it's not the first time that this has happened. In John 2.22, it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had spoken this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It wasn't until later that they remembered what was going on. They recognized what was going on. And it's because after Jesus' glorification and after the Holy Spirit was sent, he would minister to them and remind them of these things. And we'll finish up today in verse 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. 
look, the world has gone after him. The crowd that had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead continued to spread the word about him. And this is the, the, many, the, the main reason why so many showed up to Jerusalem to welcome him there is because they had heard about what he had done. And while it is awesome that there were so many there to see him, it also shows how short-lived belief that is stirred up by miracles can last. Because it would only be a few days until these same people would be crying out, crucify him. You see, faith that lasts must be built on a relationship and trust in the person of Jesus based on a foundation of his word. Not on external events, no matter how miraculous they are. That's why I don't think you see God answering those silly prayers when somebody says, well, if God's real, make him make this rock float. You know, if God's real, have him do a miracle right now because faith built on miracles just doesn't last. You have to put your trust in him and on the truthiness of his word for a faith that lasts, a relationship built with him. But nonetheless, the Pharisees are now dumbfounded by what's going on. You see, they had hoped to grab Jesus when he, they expected him to come and preach at the temple again like he does for every feast, and they expected to grab him as he was coming in. But they realized there were just too many people that were following him. They couldn't get through the galaxies. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out. This was actually, these people around him was actually a barrier to keep him safe to ensure that his timing, that God's timing was fulfilled. They couldn't get through the crowd. Yet all of this forces their hand to do things exactly as God wanted them done to fulfill his timing. You know, it's funny, you look at this and, and you don't... As, and as I was studying, this is the first time I noticed this, how intricate God's plan actually was. Now think about this. The, triumphant, the triumphal entry, when he was going to be put on the cross during Passover to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill the, 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 the foreshadowing of what happened in the Old Testament to all of this timing that had to be done at a certain time is all put in place by things that, that, that God did weeks before. You know, when, when when Jesus told uh, uh, Mary that God was going to be glorified in raising Lazarus from the dead, he probably thought, well, you know, when he does get raised from the dead, yeah, that glorified God, but think about how much more there was to this story. Because he raised him from the dead, when Jesus went to have dinner with him, the whole crowd of Jews came in. This whole crowd of Jews came, and they went ahead and they, they, they told the other Jews that were pilgrimaging, and then they had this huge celebration of him coming into the city, fulfilling prophecy in Zechariah. And then because there were so many in the crowd, the Jews couldn't get, him, get to him right away, so they have to wait till later when, when Judas Iscariot can, can be a little shady and take him to where he is, where it's not so many people they can get to him. And then that way that he goes before Pontius Pilate and then finally is put, to the, put on the cross on Passover and taken off before the beginning of the festival of... of, uh, of what's the name of that festival? Unleavened bread, Unleavened bread sorry. 
Booths kept popping in my head and I knew that wasn't right. So, but uh, all of this works together intricately to, to make this thing happen according to God's timing. It's really incredibly amazing at what happened. All of these things that happened is to force their hand so that God's timing would be fulfilled. And then ultimately, each and every one of us who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ would be saved, not only being forgiven of our sins, but being made brand new, no longer a slave to sin. Amen.